If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we're going to be studying verses 6 through 11 in a kind of progressive conversation that Paul's having with the church in Rome about uh, everyone's guilt. So we're in the real fun part of the gospel message. Um, I had a a coach, a wrestling coach in the 70s who uh, played favorites. And if you've played sports, maybe you've had the similar circumstance. You were varsity or an upperclassman. You can get away with murder. You could joke around. You could prank. You could fun with the guy. You could have lots of things. But if you were if you were an underclassman or you didn't know what you were doing, all the rules changed. Like the the, the relationship you had with him, the no fun rule was on and in effect. And uh, and that's uh, somewhat uh, the life experience for people when it comes to their thoughts of God. They think God acts like a coach. Like there are certain special people. That, in fact, you can be one of the special ones. You can even act like an idiot sometimes. After all, God will never mind you because, because you're good or moral or whatever. And so there are others then who think, obviously, if I don't do certain things or do certain things, that God's coming and he's coming with a big hammer and he's going to judge me. Now, Paul is dealing with the whole perspective of favoritism from God's angle about sin. So we're going to find out that God doesn't show favorites or doesn't play favorites, that there is no color or creed or political party or denomination and or good or bad people that God measures one way and then measures another way. God is completely just in his assessment of man's sin and that every person who's ever lived is under the condemnation of God. Now, um, if you are new to our study in Romans, we are in the midst of a conversation that Paul is having that started in verse 18 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, 65 verses where Paul is simply describing the guilt of all men and all women and all children who've ever lived, that everybody compared to the holy standard of God is in trouble and they need Jesus. So I've just given you the picture of Romans, the whole thing, but he's in the, in the category of declaring the, the argument that all are sin, sinners, we have that in common. <clears throat> And everyone is, is guilty. He is addressed in verses 18 to 32 to the, so let's describe him as the happy-go-lucky, I didn't know there was a God and I didn't know he cared about sin guy. That guy, wherever he is, um, he's in denial. And Paul took us through that discussion that he walks outside and he thinks that this just happened. And God says, no, creation and the order of creation is really a description and a demonstration that there is a God. And will you know about Jesus and the gospel? No, but you can't say there is no God by what has been made. And yet natural man, he has a tendency to suppress that truth and just make up stories about God. He lives as if there is no God. In fact, he lives as if he is God himself and, and decides what, where the buck stops and it stops with him. Last week, we picked up chapter two. And the first five verses was describing the good person, the moral person. This is a person who who thinks because of things he does or doesn't do that God owes him something. And he looks at his life, his happy life, his, his going well kind of life, and he suggests that because things are going well, God must be approving of his life. And he considers not at all his sin or God's judgment of sin. He thinks because I got a great thing going on that God is putting his stamp approval on it. 
Um, we're going to pick up in verse 17 in a couple of weeks, the religious person. This is a person who says, I've got a special relationship with God, whether it be a Jew or let's say it's someone sitting in a church pew who might even be a leader somewhere. Because of your proximity to the church or to religion, you think that God owes you something too. And so Paul just keeps pl- pulling away every defense someone would have, either the ignorance defense or the I'm a good person defense or I'm a religious person defense, all to get us to the same conclusion, we're all guilty as charged under the holiness of God, and there's a condemnation for that. So that's kind of where we're at in our story. And, and Paul has, has presented us with our guilt of sin, but he's also described another activity that we do apart from sin, and that is this idea of, of storing up wrath. Now, I'm going to describe it this way. I had a, my, my second job ever, my first job ever was working at a dairy farm out of high school, and I just bailed hay. My second job I got was with a man named Wilbur Westerman. His sister's name was Helga. Neither one of them were ever married, and so when I met him, he was in his late 50s, and he wore his hat kind of sideways, and he smoked like a chimney. There was always a cigarette, and he had a fix-it shop, a classic old fix-it shop. You bring in an appliance, you bring in your car, you bring in a truck, anything you bring in, he could fix. And so I worked with Will. And he was kind of really a throwback guy. We chopped our own wood. We heated the, the shop with, with uh, firewood and a big burning stove. And he would make anything. Anything he, anything he thought about, he would make. And he was kind of a, an eclectic dude. He would just collect things. And uh, he had barns full of stuff. We would travel around the Midwest, and he would just, when someone would stop using a windmill, he thought these are going to be valuable someday. So we would tear down windmills just for side fun, you know. He had barns full of that stuff and barns full of cars and parts and tractors and just strange things. And I, I, I told somebody last service that the, the, day, the week before I got married, I got in a car accident. My car got totaled, and he took me out to his garage, and he opened it up, and there was his favorite car, a 1948 Oldsmobile, and he said, I want you to have this. Now, I didn't take it because I felt bad. It was his favorite car. And someone told me earlier I was stupid. So maybe I was. <laughs> I should have taken his Oldsmobile. But the dude collected everything. Not like a hoarder. Like he had really good things all around. He had 60 years of life. And all of it was valuable to him. And, and in essence, it was his treasure. Paul uses a word in chapter 2, verse 5, that I think would surprise you. When he's talking about the wrath of God that the righteous or the good person is storing up for. I want you to see it in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up. Do you see the phrase there? Wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word store up is the same phrase for treasured. Now, nobody in their right mind would think about God's almighty, wrathful hand against us and go, I treasure that, that activity. Like, I can't wait for God's, God's right hand. But, but Paul is saying, listen, what you're doing is like a hoarder or like a collector. You're collecting God's righteous judgment for all of your rebellion and all your sin, all of your, quote, unquote, human righteousness that you think merit God's favor or affections, everything that you do that's like willfully wrong or things you think that are good enough to have God say, never mind to sin, everything you're collecting, you're storing up a, a, a wrath of God for sin some, someday. And so we're in those two activities. I I want you to keep that in your mind as we unpack even more of what Paul says about sin and how deep and dark it has affected us. Because most people, first of all, struggle with the fact that they're guilty as charged to such a degree that they would agree with what Paul says. And then they would never consider the fact that every day they live that way, they are storing up God's rightful reaction to our lives. 
And we would never use the word wrath to describe what our future is with God. And yet Paul does. And he says it's because of a hard, stubborn, unrepentant, disobedient heart. And because of that rebellion against God, that that whole heart demeanor, Paul says we are collecting, get this, the settled, determined, deliberate, righteous anger of God against our sin. Now, I don't know if you're visiting us for the first Sunday, and, and I'm just burying you under guilt, but God in his sovereignty has you where you are at the right time. Because I've said this forever, that if you don't see how severe the problem is, you would never, ever want his solution. If somehow you'd be confused in thinking that your life is okay and what you know about God is enough or, or how you don't do certain things or do certain things or you just simply ignore the whole thing about God, you deny that it exists, you deny the truth about Jesus and you simply have to find your own version of truth. And I want you to know something. At least today you're gonna leave with a burden. And the burden will be God. Now, he has provided us the solution. His name is Jesus. And the story of Jesus is so great. It is so awesome. It doesn't come by human effort, and it can't be lost. It can't be gained. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, right? And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. So always remember that when we're trying to build the case that Paul makes for our deserving wrath, the conclusion, the punchline is always freedom in Jesus. Freedom in Jesus for all who believe. So I'll make sure you keep that in your mind as we spend our time in these few verses here. <clears throat> when you think about God's wrath, the human heart always wants to run to the, to the list of excuses. I, I'm the exception to the rule. And uh, last week we looked at God's perfect judgment in verse 2 of chapter 2, that he sees everything. He's very precise. He judges according to truth, according to justice and righteousness. In other words, I just had this chat with just somebody just a second ago. He says, I don't even know why I do what I do sometimes. And isn't that a great commentary of every human heart? Like you don't even know your own motives, but God does. When you're confused about why you do what you do or who you did it for or who you thought would get the credit or what evil like little intentions you have, God knows everything precisely because he, he deals on truth. And you can't sneak by God. You can't have God say, well, I, you know, he's a great guy. I mean, look at what he does. God knows. He knows everything about everyone all the time. He knows every intention of the heart, every action, every secret, as scary as that is. And so we learned last week that because he knows that and he judges accurately, we're all guilty. This week, we're adding one more perspective to his judgment, and that is that he judges us according to our deeds, now, let me just give you some kind of parameters to, to, to wait with while we're going through this together. You're going to probably, if you're a thinker, end up with some questions on what we say in the beginning. Because Paul's trying to make an argument, um, and he's using deeds to talk about it, or good works versus bad works. And if you've been around church or you've been around God's sovereignty for a long time, that should just like throw up red flags all over um, because we understand the gospel. But I I want you to know we're going to get to that. But Paul does use it as a discussion here in Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. So I thought we'd read it together, and then we'll just try to pull it apart. Let me read verse 5 before we get into it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In these verses, Paul is describing two different types of people. In fact, he he describes, in essence, two paths. We're going to call them the God-centered path and the self-centered path. The God-centered path is the one that Paul says here is good deeds. It has well-doing in it. It leads uh, us to eternal life, and it leads to glory and honor and immortality. The self-centered life, Paul says, leads to crazy things like wrath and fury and and distress and tribulation. Nobody likes to talk about that, but let's unpack the first God-centered perspective before we get into this. Paul deals with it in verses 7 and 10. It's kind of like the parentheses around the bad story, okay? And he describes two things particular in in the God-centered person, two descriptions of them, okay? One is they're doing good, and it might seem subtle, but it, it, but it has some punch in this. They're doing good. And the second thing is they continue to do good. In other words, they live a life of doing good. It's not like they have a good moment of doing good. It's not like they can look back at their life and say that one season of that one month of that one year, he was really knocking it out of the park. This is a person who does good a lot. Like he's known for good works, okay? Look at the, look at the passage with me. In verse 10, talks about the good deeds, the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And verse 7 talks about the consistency of it. To those who by patience in well-doing. These people are steady in their good works. They're constantly involved in it. They're living a lifestyle of it. Verse 7 begins to talk about the person's motivation. Like what drives this person to good works? And Paul uses three words. The words are glory, honor, and immortality. Let, Let me define these for us so we know what drives this good person. Glory refers to the transformation that happens when, when God gets a hold of a life. This is the person who is being changed and transformed in the image of Jesus. This is the glory that this person has as a motivation. Someday, someday I'll be like him. Someday I'll think like him and I won't think like that. And someday I won't have these things dragging me around or these inclinations or these bends towards sin. Someday I'm going to be like Jesus. So there's this huge motivation for this person who does good because he wants to be transformed. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3. I want to read it from the New Living Translation. I think it helps like really be clear here. But Paul is talking about like the law versus grace here. And he talks about the old way and the new way. And the old way is obviously the law. The new way is grace. And this is what he says. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they don't understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit and whenever... Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and, watch, 
reflect the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Here's what Paul has said to these, this church in Corinth. Listen, there is, there is this transformation that takes place. God has given life. He's given a heartbeat. There is, there is becoming, uh, not yet, but already kind of ex- expectations for the Christian. Like we know the finished work of Christ for us. That right now in heaven we're declared as holy. But in the process before heaven, we're being transformed day to day from glory to glory, right? We're becoming like him. That is the, one of the motivations for this good person that Paul describes here. It's glory. The second thing he says is honor. And that is referring to God's approval of believers. And, and like this, in contrast to the disapproval of the world for the same group of people. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, um, these things, uh, if you live this way, you will be hated, right? If you pursue me, if you live for me, if you are like me, you will be hated in return. They hated me, they'll hate you. Remember that? There's a, there's a disapproval of the world for Jesus in us. And yet what we hope for, church, is that God will look at us and go, well done. I approve of you. I love you. Even though you're rejected everywhere else, you're special to me. That's the approval of God. And, and Paul says one of the driving factors of the good moral person is that he not only is seeking the transformation, but he's seeking the approval of God. There's one other thing he says here, and that is immortality. And that just simply refers to the resurrection hope for believers. That someday Jesus is coming back for his church and we will not be the same. Someday that, that war between the flesh and the spirit will be over. Someday that inclination towards sin and all the scars and, and you know, tendencies that we have in our life, they're going to evaporate. They're going to be gone in the presence of Christ. This is what uh, Paul said in 1 first, in first Corinthians. It will happen in the moment in the brink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. God has this, he's got this journey for us to go on. And so the good person, he looks at the glory of God, transformation, image of Christ, becoming like Jesus, that's one of my driving factors. I get to be honored. God's going to approve of me as opposed to the rejection of the world. And ultimately, one day, sin's going to be done away with. I'll get a new body and a new life. Now, now look at the promises he mentions in kind of the second half of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 10. These are the promises of God. So we've seen the motivations, but now these are the promises of God for the self or the God-centered person. And he says, one, it's eternal life. You see it at the end of 7? And the beginning of 10 but glory, honor, and peace. Now, some of these are very similar to the motives that drive the God-centered person, but let's just, just touch on these quickly. Eternal life is simply that. It's life in heaven with God, forever and ever, ever escaping God's judgment. That's the point of it. Everyone has eternal life, by the way. This kind of eternal life that Paul is talking about is the kind that's free from God's judgment and wrath. Only believers in Jesus Christ experience this kind of eternal life. Everybody else experiences eternal life in a place called hell, in judgment. Either way, that's one of the promises God offers the good person. He also uses the words glory and honor again, and we just looked at that. It's the transformation. It's the approval of God. But he mentions peace. And there's several uses of peace that the scriptures 
say is for the church. One is the, the peace with God. We talk about this a lot here, that there's this huge chasm that exists between God that's holy and we who are sinful. And nothing can fix that. I can't work hard enough. I can't try hard enough. I can't know enough. I can't go to church enough to fix it. Jesus has to fix that. And so when Jesus provides his life for our life, when he takes on the wrath of God for us, we go free and we get peace with God. So what the Bible says at one time, we were at enmity, we were at war with God, Jesus makes peace, right? So we get peace with God, and we also have the peace of God, which the scriptures talk about a lot, that in the midst of trials or circumstances or life or confusion or sickness or whatever, that there is something we believe in so much greater than our circumstances that we still have the peace of God. But either way, those two pieces that, that we just talked about are ours today. We're not waiting for something in the future. We have the peace with God today. In fact, we're as holy as we'll ever be, righteous robes of Christ, amen? And we have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. But there is a peace that Paul is suggesting here that we get as well as a promise for being this good person in, in God's eyes. And that is that we get this freedom from the actual activity of sin and its collateral damage. Even though we have peace with God and even though we're saved or, or even though we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, you wake up every day like I do and you get twisted, don't you? The Bible talks about this fight between the flesh and the spirit and the flesh is at war with the things of the spirit and the things of God and, and, uh, and I, I really believe depending upon which one you feed is which one you listen to and so some, some weeks are better than others, Right? Some, some weeks you act like an absolute pagan, God-hating unbeliever, and so do I. And some weeks, based on some work that God's doing in your life or some uh, Holy Spirit putting gates around you and fences around you, you've done some things that couldn't have happened unless God was working in you and you've avoided sin, and he'll get the glory for that. But e either way, we experience, gosh, I hate that. I got angry again. And every one of us have a, a particular specialty of sin. <laughs> we all have our bents and our inclinations, and we're really good at a certain category of them. You might not share the ones with your wife or with your brother or whoever, but you have your issues, right? And they're ones you fall into and fall into. Well, here's the peace that God promises to us. Someday that fight's going to be over, church. Someday there will be no sin telling us what to do or how to feel. Someday there will be no collateral damage of people that we've hurt or, or things that have just blown up because we put our stupid sinful foot in it, right? That's the peace that, that God promises to the church. Now, if you're paying attention, we got a problem. I'm going to ask you a question and you'll, you'll realize the problem. Has anyone ever picked the God-centered path? In other words, has anyone ever chosen to be God-centered and good in his own strength? Don't be afraid of the answer. Okay. No. See, it's one thing if I could just present you with two really cool options, or maybe, maybe making one so beautiful that it just makes the other one look stupid. And by comparison, like, oh, man, God-centered, and I get eternal life, and I get peace, and I get glory and honor. Of course, it's kind of like sitting at a car dealership and picking options out of a car. I want the better one. But nobody can pick the better one. And that's what Paul's argument is. I mean, when he gets all done, just pulling away every excuse that man has, we're all at the same place, enabled to fix our problem. Uh, look at Romans chapter 3 real quick. We're going to do a, 
a quick reminder of what Paul says kind of as the punchline to this argument for the last nine weeks we've had here. What's he say in verse 10? None is righteous. No, not. No, not. There you go. Good morning. Um, No one understands God and no one seeks God. So there isn't anybody out there going, I choose to be good. And I choose to do right things. And I choose to have God's glory and honor and and immortality. And I choose to have peace with God. Nobody, Nobody does that. It'd be great if we did. But we don't because we're so twisted in sin. And therefore, here's Paul's conclusion. Every man is condemned. Because when God gets done looking at your works, it all falls short. And God does not show favorites. So you could say, I deny the existence of God, or I hate Jesus Christ, or I hate the standard of holiness. Okay. Or you could be sitting in a church pew and being a good, moral, tax-paying citizen. Doesn't change the fact that you're all guilty under God's righteous standard. You get it? And God does not show favorites. And he won't make a pile of the sort of good and the clearly bad and treat them differently. He's going to deal with all of them with perfect holiness. And that's Paul's argument in this process. The good don't get off the hook with God. Now let's look at the second path that uh, Paul has presented us with in these verses. The second one is the self-centered path. It's what he deals with in verses 8 and 9. And this is the, this is the part where I really need you to listen up. Not that I didn't want you to listen to the last part, but please get this. Th- this is the bad news. Um, this is... The path every single person who has ever lived is on apart from divine intervention. We talked to you earlier on um, in chapter 1 in verses, I don't know, 18 through 32 about the the natural man who denies the existence of God, right? And he denies the natural revelation that you walk outside and you can can see that there's order and there's a God of order. And, And Paul just says that's enough to condemn you. You don't have an excuse. We also talked about the fact that, that uh, sometimes God, many times you, for instance, God gives special revelation. Most of you are holding a Bible in your lap. Someone told you about Jesus and to- someone told you about sin and a Savior and, and uh, the propitiation of your sins on Jesus that somehow God's wrath could be satisfied when Jesus dies for you and he could apply it to you. And, and so that's a special revelation. You're still not saved. You know what you need? Divine intervention. I don't know how many people, a lot of my friends who have multiple Bibles in their house and know what I just said but have no desire for Jesus and haven't had their sins dealt with because God has to dive into the human heart and transform it from death to life. Do you understand? Because we're at an active dead war with God. We're at enmity with him. Nobody by understanding or good intentions or or anything else can sort this thing out. God has to give life to dead people. Do you understand? He's the one that transforms us And so that's why it's really important to understand that what Paul's talking about when he's talking about the self-seeking person, apart from Jesus, sort of, we're all this guy. Every one of us is this person. He describes it this way. This is what they do, the self-centered. They're self-seeking. It's the opposite of Matthew 22 when, when Jesus is presenting the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, everything to God. And here's how you prove it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This self-seeking person has the complete different mindset. Life is for them. 
not for service and not for love of God, not to, to demonstrate it by loving other people. This person uh, has a problem with truth and has a problem with authority simply because it cramps their style and their desire to be their own God, and so they deny it. This is a person who doesn't have a problem with the damage and hurt that their sin causes other people. This is a self-centered person, totally self-centered. Ever met one? Yeah? These are people you delete on your phone. You don't like talking to these people. I've had a, a thousand conversations, probably no exaggeration, with parents um, who will come and have come and seen me about their kid who's gone off the wagon. And what I mean by that is they just, they were doing so good. And now they just reject everything and they're angry and they're bitter and they're doing crazy stuff that's hurting themselves. And, and I look at the agony in the parents' face and I look at the kid and there's just total indifference to the pain that they're causing. Now, if you can picture that, if you can put your mind around that scenario, Parents love for child. I'll do anything for you. Child looking at the parent going, I don't care less. That's exactly what the self-seeking heart is. I don't care about others and I don't care about laws and I don't care about rules and I'll do it myself and, and if you get hurt, so be it. Well, that's, that's the heartbeat of a self-centered person. He goes on this list here and if I'm gonna just cut to the chase on what Paul is saying in this section, he's basically describing chapter one. He says that they do not obey the truth. This is the no truth person. The self-seeker says, well, I get to decide what truth is. It's, it's sort of like the natural man who walks outside and says, yeah, there's no God, this just happened. <laughs> You're denying truth. The, the list of sins in chapter one is this obeys righteousness. They get busy doing wrong things, and then he says does evil. That's kind of like the invention part. This is the creative part of sin. They make up new ways to do wrong things. And now look at the outcome. So that's the activity they're in. Now let's look at the outcome. Four horrifying words. Wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Let me put these things in two categories. Wrath and fury are kind of one thought. Tribulation and distress are the other thought. Wrath and fury simply speak of God's fierce and absolute hatred and opposition to sin. Like, I don't know what gets you going or what makes you more passionate than anything else in the world. But God's feeling against sin and evil is preeminent. This is his, his wrath and his fury or how he feels about sin and his opposition to it. Now, tribulation and distress really speak of the effect of God's punishment on sinners. And uh, I always find it very, very humorous when we're in the middle of talking about gory stuff like this that you might be here for the first time and Wow, they're a heavy-duty church. And I, I just got to tell you what it says. Paul said, this is what's coming. Distress and tribulation for those who are living the self-centered life. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, it's a place where the worm doesn't die and fire does not go out. God has invented a place for punishment that, that exists forever. Um, if you've ever seen or heard the book by Jonathan Edwards, In the Hands of an Angry God, um, I actually got a couple of quotes from it. I was a little bit concerned that it was getting darker and darker, you know, like the message is getting so heavy, we'd all have to protect each other from hurting ourselves. But um, I went into Neil, and I said, here's a couple of quotes I think I might read. Neil looks at it and goes, oh, no, it's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. So I backed out of them um, just because I didn't want to bury you too bad. But I do have one little sentence by Edwards regarding a perspective on hell. It's kind of a sentence of kind of a play on words. He calls this suffering, this, this eternal suffering, the exquisite, horrible, eternal misery. 
And that was the best part of the quote that he had that I was going to read to you. The point is that that is the future for every person who ever lived good or bad or religious or indifferent or denying. Every person deserves the exquisite, eternal, perfect misery of God in a place called hell. And, and I know this, the most merciful thing I can tell you is that's true because my prayer is at the end of it, you go, I don't want that. I really don't want that. I don't want that kind of judgment. I don't want to see my sin that way and I don't want to experience the weight of that punishment forever and ever and never and ever and never have that fire quenched. I don't want God's weight on me forever because I hope at the end of this, you're going to see Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel can set you free and you can walk away from your sins and God's condemnation and you can live a God-centered life. But... It is a true statement, and that's what Paul is making here, that everyone is in trouble. Now, if you've been paying attention here to what Paul is saying, there may appear to be what looks like a contradiction, a contradiction to what you've heard us say before about the gospel or the fact that nobody can fix their own problem because it sort of sounds like if you lift these verses out of context that you're left with the idea that the key to salvation is works, potentially, right? Like somehow good works equal salvation. In fact, let's read it just so you can hear it again. Verse 6 and 7. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Does that not sound like if I do these things, he will give this? Does that sound like effort or works equal some kind of future? Well, let me just give you three classic interpretations of this passage to get us to the obvious one. The first one, interpretation, um, is this thought. As long as my good pile is bigger than my bad pile, when God gets done evaluating it, he'll lean good pile and I'm okay. This is the preeminent interpretation of the entire world when it comes to God and sin. Everyone works with this perspective. Like God knows I try and God knows I'm a good person and God knows I've never done that. I've never killed anybody, right? Everyone goes through a list of reasons why they're the exception to this judgment or this evaluation of a holy God for our sinfulness. And so there's that potential interpretation. You can look at it and say, well, here's what he says. Just make sure that you got at least one more good work than bad and you got some hope. The second possible interpretation you may have heard, and that is this, that, that Paul is just simply making a hypothetical argument. Like if, if there was a way to God, it would have to come from perfect works. Like, if there was a way. And so he's making an argument. Obviously, that's silly because the entire book of Romans is arguing against that point. There is no way other than Jesus. But some have said that. And the third interpretation is the correct one, and that is simply Paul describing the condition and the practice of those who are justified and those who are condemned. He's just describing two different types of people. He's not describing how those people get to God. Do you understand? So... Um, in other words, fruit, good works, will be the evidence in judgment to prove whether you were truly converted by the Holy Spirit of God. It's kind of like um, you were on trial, and the prosecutor is bringing charges against you, but instead of him bringing the evidence to prove whether you're innocent or guilty, you have to. And your boxes are full of life's works, and the judgment of God will simply take those out and go, that's real or that's not real. We're bringing the evidence. Fruit will be the evidence in judgment. So 
Paul is not saying, and you need to get this, I want to make sure it's super, super clear, I'm going to say it two or three times so you cannot miss this. He is not saying that anyone ever could be saved by good works. He's not saying that. No one is saved unless Jesus alone covers them for their salvation. It's, look at chapter 5 real quick just to make sure you don't miss this. Chapter 5 of Romans, let's read the first couple of verses here. Therefore, since we have been justified by, what's it say? Faith. Not by works. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by, into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Look at verse 6. And for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Of God. Paul's whole argument in the book of Romans is that God's salvation, God's acceptance, God's approval is not by man's effort. Man's effort can't fix it. He is not good enough for God's holiness. What man needs is what Jesus alone provides in the free work of the cross, and that is salvation, true transformation, true life. And listen very carefully, church, and when he saves you, he changes you. There's a whole bunch of people out there preaching that somehow you can be saved and see no fruit from it. I mean, there's churches littering the corners all over our country that say, all you need is this, all you need is this. And it's true unto salvation, but God never saves anybody he doesn't change. That's that is impossible. God doesn't say, let me give you a new heart and a new mind and new loves and new passions and new affections, and you'll never look any different than you did before. Let me take out the heart of stone that thought living for yourself or meriting your own favor with God is a way to live. And let me give you freedom in Christ and let me give you love for others. And you never demonstrate love for others. And you never confess sin. And you never walk away and repent. Or you never give of your life or your money or your resources. And you never have hope. If those things never happen, you have never been saved. Because God doesn't save anybody. He doesn't change. Do you understand? Yeah, there you go. McFly. Yeah, that's the truth. He doesn't save people. He doesn't change. Let me just take you to passage in Matthew to give you a little snapshot of the day in front of Christ, the final judgment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats, those who are his and those who are not his, and the distinction between the two of them. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. I won't read it, but he goes on to describe those goats. And they 
also were confused. Like, when did we see you hungry? Because Jesus said, you never, you never fed me, and you never gave me something to drink, and you never visited me, you never cared for me when I was sick. And they said, well, Lord, when did, I, when did we see you? And he simply says, all these people, they are me in essence. You have the heart of me for these people, and you never once served, you never once cared, and you never once gave of yourself. It's going to be a perfect assessment, but church, it will happen. And he will divide those who are his and those who aren't. And the ones who aren't will be confused that they're not. Does that scare you? It should. And, and the reason why we're in this passage is because we need to be sober about the work of Christ for us. In fact, this salvation doesn't come by good works Good works come by salvation. If you were to pick up Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, his entire argument is to defend that position. Remember, the church in Galatia had some people saying, listen, you got to add works, you got to add circumcision and Jesus, and then you get salvation. And he wrote like this really like angry letter to defend Jesus alone by grace alone. In fact, he said something like, if anybody messes with this gospel of Jesus alone by faith, let him be damned to hell forever if they mess with it. Some of the harshest words Paul ever uses, and he does it twice in Galatians, small little book, to say to everyone, leave the gospel alone. The gospel is an offense because you can't be good enough. The gospel should bother you because it's by grace alone, in Christ alone. It should bother you because your works don't matter. They don't merit God's attention. But listen very carefully. What Paul is saying here in Romans is that God has made you unto good works. Not because he's going to look at your good works and go, now I know you're saved. God saves you and sets you free to go love. Do you understand? Please shake your head if you understand what I just said. He saves us and he frees us to go on to do good works. And so if Paul can get angry about someone messing with the gospel, he can get, he can get seriously concerned about people suggesting somehow that God doesn't change people. He saves. And so this passage that we've read here uh, today is simply describing, not declaring, no one's saved by good works, but everyone who's saved will have good works. It's pretty simple, right? So if you're uh, sitting here today, and I was going through the self-centered, God-centered part of this story, and you saw yourself as the self-centered, for whatever reason, your own assessment would say, you know, I'm kind of, I know about Jesus, like I'm visiting here. I may be here to placate someone's, you know, asking me a thousand times to come to church, but you would say of yourself that you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ alone, that you're still putting hope in the fact that you might be different or different enough that some, if there was some God, he'd be okay with you. You would be called what Paul says here, the self-centered. Let me give you some thoughts, and I, I'm stealing these from Boyce's commentary, but at least there's three of them here that I want to mention with you. If you know you're on the wrong path, called self-centered, start here recognize you're on the wrong path. It's just humility. It's just recognition that you're, it's the wrong way. Nobody's going to get off the wrong path if they think it eventually will lead somewhere, will they? No one's going to say, something else, I need something else, if you think that somewhere, maybe even your bad choices now will get you places. As long as you keep denying God and living your life for yourself and for your own happiness, you'll never, ever want something different. So recognize you're on the wrong path. The second thing you should do is admit the path will never change. This is the ultimate description of insanity. Well, it hasn't worked so far. And he just told me that God won't accept it anyway. Um, and it won't ever change. It's never going to become the right path. 
it's never going to change. And God's never going to go, oh, oh, I changed my mind. In 2013, I had a, a revolution. And I thought maybe I'd save people based on effort. So all the rules are off. It's not going to change. God's standard is perfection and holiness, and the Bible says no man is, and so we need a holiness from some holy source called Jesus who gets applied to us, right? Jesus covers us in his righteous robes, and we go free. There's another thing. If you're on the wrong path, turn around. Turn around. It's the word repent. We've talked about it a lot. Repentance is an action. It's, it's 2 Corinthians seven eleven where Paul's describing repentance. It means to change your mind about what you do. It means to hate the sin that offends God and its effects. It means to pursue holiness. It means to clean up the mess. Repentance is an understanding that God doesn't play favorites with sin. And I'll, I, I bet I could find many people here that are way better than me or the elders or pastors of this church. You're still going to suffer God's judgment if Jesus isn't your only hope. And then one last thought for the church. I, I know that's kind of the self-centered person. There's a God-centered bunch of us in here. I watch you. I see you shake your head when we talk about Jesus, and I, I, I sense that you trust in him and no other. And it's almost like, well, that message is for somebody else, right? These are people who are trusting in works to bring them some sense of peace or joy or salvation, and that's stupid, and I already know that, so... I'll wait till we get to Romans 3, and then I'll pay attention to application. So I had a little thought this week that it might be helpful for us just, just in a couple of minutes to approach what we do now in Jesus. Because there's a weight of judgment for the church that I don't think we're prepared for. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul um, is talking about what the church does for Christ. He suggests to the church that we should really concern ourselves with what kind of building we're building. Like Paul lays the foundation of truth and be very careful what you add to this Christian life thing because even as Christians, we can build with the wrong materials. Things like bad intentions or pride or insecurity or having someone recognize me or say out a boy about me, and so we're doing all this service, we're giving all this money, simply because we like man's approval, and God in his holiness is going to look at those gifts someday that you thought were for his glory, and his holiness will assess them, church, and they will get consumed. And you'll be left there with empty pockets, wishing you could glorify God, and you got nothing to give. Let me just read this passage to you, and I'll make a couple of points, and we'll be done. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will re be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through fire. Let me give you just a quick little snapshot of what's going on here. And I'm going to use kind of weird story. Um, every one of us who trust in Christ... The, the, the clear thinking part of our mind would say, I want to do everything for the glory of God. We know that answer. 
And we march out to live for the glory of God, unclear about our own intentions and motives, or sometimes super clear about it because we're so massively broken, even in that war of sin and, and Jesus. And so we have kind of, cut me some slack, like a spiritual wagon that we're putting gifts in, like service. I served children's ministry, and I gave to that building fund, and I met that needy person's needs. And you're, you're storing up in this wagon that you're taking to the kingdom because you know that these things ultimately will be gifts that you offer the king because it's all for his glory, right? And so God, because he's passionate for glory and he won't share it with another, he's going to take out every one of those gifts and look at them and say, how did you and why did you do that? Like, what were your intentions doing that? And if your intentions were impure, if your intentions were for you and not for him, the holiness of God will just consume it because he will not take any unauthentic gift. And here's what Paul is saying, and you can, you can call it cheesy if you want to. He suggests that there's going to be a lot of people who get up there thinking they have this much to offer the king as a, as, a, as a demonstration of his glory and how great he is and he gets all the credit, only to have the holiness of God just kind of fire it all up and prove its worth and there's nothing left. And he suggests there's a group of people that will suffer loss. Now, I don't know what that means, but it's not good. You'll be saved, but Paul even suggests you'll be saved, but you'll have the smell of smoke on your clothes because you're just going to escape the flames of hell. Kind of sobering, right? Like church, we're the, we're the God-centered people who claim that we've been redeemed by Jesus' blood. Like we walk free and we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. And yet if we walk around like knuckle-headed, insecure people doing things for our own recognition, the glory of God, which we will really care about next someday in the future, we're not going to get to participate in because His holiness will not allow the phony gifts. So just a challenge. If you're a self-centered person, run to Jesus repent. If you're a God-centered person who's been building with wood, hay, and straw, and you know the holy fire of God will just blow that away, repent. Call it what he does, leave it behind, and fight every day to give him a pure gift. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, our only hope. God, I thank you that... Uh, for all of us, at least at one time, and maybe some that are still sitting here who are outside your, your kingdom, the gospel is available by faith in Christ alone. God, reach them today, I pray. And for those of us who know Christ, who have been forgiven of our sins, God, help us not tolerate phony gifts anymore. I pray, God, we'd offer you everything that's pure. By your power, we can, we pray in Christ's name.